Welcome back to our study of the book of Isaiah called Let Us Reason Together. Let Us Reason Together. The fascinating thing about the title of this, Let Us Reason Together, is the book is very instructive on this exact point. That the book of Isaiah teaches us how do the people of God deal with their God? How can they know him? How can they best work with him? How can they best understand his ways and join him in the work that he is doing here on the earth? Well, right in the middle of the book of Isaiah is a great lesson on how we actually put into action what it is that we're learning from the prophet Isaiah. Practical, there's a practical real world example, a real historical example found in the midst of the book in chapters 36 through 39. It's a narrative section that's at the heart of the book, and it seems to dictate even the very form of the book, because up until those, until those narrative sections, the focus is on the Assyrian threat to Judah and Jerusalem. And that is resolved here in chapters 36 and 37, but then it transitions to the next threat that will come against Judah and Jerusalem, the Babylonian threat. And this is a fascinating portion of the book, and it stands in the middle of this book for a great reason, because here the rubber meets the road, the principles of dealing with God, of knowing God, of being his people, uh, come right head to head with the pressures of the world and the difficulties that we face, some of which are even our own doing. So what do we do when the world seems like it's, it's attacking us, it's coming in on us, that we are defeated before the world? What, do we, what, is, what is the point if so much of it is our own fault? And what are the goals and plans of God in those situations? And how do we move forward? Well, we're going to begin to learn some of that today as we look at Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah chapter 36. And I want to begin by just looking at the first three verses here in Isaiah chapter 36. Here's how it begins, and this will give us our background. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria and the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So there we have the context as it is what's the actual scene that we're looking at here in chapter 36 well first of all the enemy has come this is these are the assyrians as it says and it's the assyrian army under sennacherib they have taken over over 40 fortified cities and villages of judah they have come down the coast along the Mediterranean. As you know, Jer Jerusalem is quite inland near to the uh, north end of the Dead Sea. And the Assyrians have come all the way down the coast, almost all the way to Egypt. And then they have circled back around to the northeast, coming toward Jerusalem. 
and they have camped at a city called Lachish, about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. They defeated Lachish, and it was a stronghold. It was effectively the last line of defense before getting to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was therefore at this moment all that was left of Judah that had not been defeated by the Assyrian forces. So Sennacherib sends three officials ahead to Jerusalem. One is this Rabshakeh, and that is not his name. That is a title which seems to mean field commander. And they've been met by three of Hezekiah's officials, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. And they've met, interestingly, in the same place as Isaiah confronted Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, who refused to trust the Lord 20 years earlier. Ahaz, instead of trusting the Lord, tried to make a treaty with the Assyrians to ensure himself against the threat of the northern kingdom and of the Syrians who were plotting against him. And the Assyrians obviously did not honor that treaty. So what does the enemy have to say here? And as, he, as the Rabshikeh is going to address now, uh, Hezekiah's officials and even the people within earshot, uh, what is he going to say and how is this going to play out? So we're going to begin then with verse 4 and we're going to take a look uh, further at this. So let's go to the, the text here and we're going to look at the rest of chapter 36 beginning at verse 4. And Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, And what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to, on your part, set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace 
with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take away, take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? They were silent, answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Well, I think it's appropriate that we, we pray at this moment over the word of God that the Lord would fulfill it in us. Lord God, we thank you so much that you have given us this word. We thank you for the words of this text, this historical account of the struggle of your people, Israel. And Lord, I pray this day as we try to understand these things in their context, Lord, that as we bring it over into our own, Lord, that we will rightly apply it, that we will rightly understand what you're saying to your people, and that, Lord, you will help us to glorify you here as you've been glorified many, many times. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have a fascinating piece, and this is uh, something that is, it, it cannot be understood how intense this moment is. You heard the words of the Rabshakeh as he, you know, railed against the people of Judah, as he railed against God, really, uh, offending God and, and the the very tough things that he said, you know, what other gods have been able to stand against us? And isn't it God himself who said, who sent us and told us to come and told us to do this? Are we not doing his will? And so Hezekiah is really in a pinch. He's in a terrible place. And I want to uh, give you a little bit of uh, a background, a little bit of understanding here that we might be able to see very clearly uh, what the context is and therefore what this all means. Well, first of all, we took a good look at the enemy, the Assyrian Empire. We've learned a great deal about them in the book of Isaiah already. We know that the Lord has brought the Assyrians to Judah in order to discipline them, that he has brought it upon them for their sins. And the Assyrian Empire has already destroyed the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom will be no more from this point forward in the narrative of the Old Testament. And so this uh, gives rise then to the Samaritans of the New Testament that we learn about, because the Assyrians took a great number of the uh, Israelite people out of that area. They settled in a great number of foreigners into that area, and they're, they forever became kind of only half Jewish in that area. And so here we have this great enemy that has come upon them. But I want to turn the focus now to the people of God, particularly to King Hezekiah. 
And I want to speak about King Hezekiah a little bit, because in order to understand his situation, we need to know something about the man. You can read more about him in 2 Chronicles and in 2 Kings, and your notes will have some cross-references to help you there. But King Hezekiah was overall one of the best kings that the southern kingdom ever had. He had a good long reign with many great reforms, and some of those things are mentioned here. For in in uh, example here, the tearing down of the high places. Uh, isn't this Hezekiah, he says, that you have uh, torn down these high places and everything else? You know, how can you be trusting in them? Uh, he says, um, we uh, in verse 7 here, he tells them, don't say you trust in the Lord your God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? What this is referring to is that there were many high places in the land of Judah, places where people were worshiping other gods. And as you know, even if they went to these high places, if they were not the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, these were unauthorized places to worship even the true God. And so Hezekiah had these places torn down. Hezekiah, rightly, according to the law that they were given, limited worship to the temple in Jerusalem. And so this is obviously misunderstood by the Assyrians. This was some of Hezekiah's reforms, which were mostly good things. They were united, the nation at this time, because of Hezekiah's work, under the fear of the Lord. They had put away many of their idols. They have re had restored temple services, which had been ceased under other kings. And they were clearly seeking the blessings of God. And so Hezekiah did a great number of good things. He reinforced the city of Jerusalem. He made many other uh, reforms in the city of Jerusalem and did many great things to help the people of Israel. However, like everyone we meet in Scripture, King Hezekiah was not perfect. He had tried to buy his way out of trouble with Assyria in this incident right here when we read about it in 2 Kings. Again, Isaiah's version here is not exhaustive. It doesn't have every detail. We go to 2 Kings 18 for these details. Look at this. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And so this is familiar. This is the same incident we're speaking of here. And here's something that Isaiah didn't, didn't mention because it didn't necessarily suit his narrative, but it's here in 2 Kings. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Syria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. To put that in perspective, that is way more money than Hezekiah probably would have been able to come up with. But he tries. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So this is... Uh, incredibly important because he not only took out of the temple treasury, out of the treasury of the kingdom, the the wealth of the kingdom, he also actually stripped the temple of much of its gold, uh, gold that overlaid many of the features, including the doors and the doorposts. And so 
he takes as much gold and silver as he can. He has all this taken to the king of Assyria. And of course, it is worthless. It is uh, ineffective at buying him off, at buying them peace. And so he had tried to buy his way out of this trouble by giving this gold and silver. And Sennacherib still demanded surrender. He had also tried to get help from Egypt. This is mentioned in verse 6 of chapter 36, where it says, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. And so this was known to uh, Sennacherib that Hezekiah had tried to get help from Egypt. And indeed he had. And he was warned against it by Isaiah. Isaiah told him in, in chapter 30, 30 that this is a uh, old stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Well, they're plainly told this is not going to work, that it will turn to their shame, the shelter in the shadow of uh, Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys uh, reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. And so they're told plainly by the prophet Isaiah prior to these things happening that this isn't going to work. Egypt is going to fail them. It's reiterated also in chapter 31 as he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And so Hezekiah was trusting in the support of Egypt. They were trusting in horses and chariots, which they have not. They were hoping to get some help from Egypt in this way. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. The Lord brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers, speaking of Judah in this way, and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. And so here the prophet made it clear this was not going to work. You were not going to be able to get help from Egypt. And these are two strikes against Hezekiah from the Lord that he had tried to buy off his uh, oppressors, Assyria. He had tried to get help from Egypt instead of trusting in the Lord. And so we come to a situation that seems hopeless. Buying them off didn't work. Egypt had failed to work. And in these, this was not just a failure of diplomacy. This was not just a failure of strategy. This was a failure of faith. He had not listened to the prophet of God. He had not listened to the word of God. And by far the worst thing is this, it, that is mentioned here by the Rabshakeh in Isaiah 36.10. As he relates what Sennacherib says to Judah, Notice this, he says, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And so he is claiming that, hey, the Lord has told me to come against you and destroy you. You are not just fighting against Assyria, therefore, you are fighting against your own God. 
And this is when we have to pause and think, and we have to say, doesn't he have a point here? Isn't this true? That this is precisely what God has been saying through the prophet Isaiah to this point in the book, that he is bringing them here to punish Judah for their sins, and not just for the sins of Hezekiah, uh, for he was mostly good, but for the sins of the nation as a whole, their sins going back for many decades, their sins under other kings, and their sins uh, for the previous several decades. But here is Hezekiah. He's not just facing the enemy. He seems to be battling against God himself and against the world. And after all, they're in a changing time. And we very often think just because in the 21st century, we see a lot of change. We see big changes year to year in our days today. But the world has always been in flux. The world has always been in change. And from time to time, place to place, things were changing radically and swiftly. And the way of things in Hezekiah's day was changing from all these small kingdoms that were independent, that that did their best, you know, that fought with their neighbors occasionally, but also made alliances with one another, things like this. And yet they were all these sovereign kingdoms. But now they're coming to the age of empires where politics was going to rule the day. They were becoming a global community, which you hear a lot about today. And the time was past when they could live in a vacuum and keep to themselves. You're going to, you know, they would essentially be saying to Hezekiah, you're going to have to step up on the world stage now. You're going to have to do business with these people. You cannot remain isolated. And in many ways, this was true. And so the temptation was for Hezekiah to be trusting in the power of politics, trusting in the power of men and and chariots and horses and the things that seemed to rule the world in those days. Join us, Hezekiah. Give up your dream of Jerusalem. Give up these, these dreams of your God. You know, you're part of this world now. You can't fight against Assyria. And here, right in the hearing of the people, where they're, they're told, they're addressed directly. You know, the, the men say, hey, look, please talk to us in Aramaic because their language there in the land was Hebrew. And many of them knew Aramaic, especially the leaders who had to do uh, diplomacy with these other nations. They knew and understood and spoke Aramaic. And so they appealed to the Rabshakeh and say, hey, come on, speak to us in Aramaic so that the people on the wall can't hear you. And he's like, hey, didn't I come to speak to them too? Don't they need to hear this? Don't they need to hear that they can't trust Hezekiah? And he turns and directly addresses the people and says, don't let Hezekiah fool you. Don't let his his vain trust in, in this Lord say that he's going to help you, that he's going to rescue you. And he's speaking to people who had already lost much because these are not just residents of Jerusalem. When there was a, an attack, a threat from enemies in a land like this, the people in the neighboring villages and towns that did not have their own defenses, they would herd their livestock to the city. They would come within the city walls. They would seek refuge in the great city. And so here are the people of, of the area of Judah that was around Jerusalem, looking out at their ruined farms, looking out at this great army that is now picking all the fruit of their fields and their vines, that is, are trampling it all down, that are defeating things and destroying things and ransacking and pillaging and looting everything they can as they go. And they're looking at all that they have lost, their livelihoods and their homes being taken. And they're being offered something in Assyria. 
They're being offered new farms and, and peace and protection from the king of Assyria. If you will just come out to us and just give yourselves up. Look how Hezekiah has failed. Look how its God has failed you. And so this is Hezekiah's pinch. How could he let these people behind these walls perish because of his own failures? And I want you to read this again, this chapter 36 here, in this speech of the Rabshakeh here, because it's like a speech from Satan himself. It is so perfectly crafted, so wickedly discouraging, and so much of it, and this is the hard part, and this is where Satan really gets under our skin, so much of it is true. So what will Hezekiah do? And what will be his next move? And we're going to pause here to think about that a minute. And in order to think about it, what we're going to do is we're going to have to review a little background. Because the background is essential to understanding. Isaiah's prophecies did not predict the fall of Jerusalem under Assyria. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8. As this is being described that, hey, Assyria is going to come and Assyria is going to punish Judah and Jerusalem. And look what it says. Um, and we're going to back up here. The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. And this is referring to Assyria. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. And so in the Emmanuel passage, chapter 7 and 8, is this, you know, this pronouncement given, and this is 20 years earlier, to King Ahaz, who didn't trust the Lord with these things, tried to make a plot and an alliance with Assyria against the northern kingdom and against Syria. And here Isaiah brings this message of God that, this is going to happen, that the king of Assyria is going to sweep into Judah and he is going to overflow and reach up to its very neck. And I want you to picture a flood in which Jerusalem effectively becomes an island in the land, the only piece of land not taken by the Assyrians. And so this is the way it's described at the first, that they'll not take Jerusalem. And that could be very important in Hezekiah's thinking here. And Isaiah also often spoke of a faithful remnant of people that would be preserved. That there would be these ones that would always survive. And Isaiah spoke of a future renewed Zion, which we've learned about in other sermons. That is a new Jerusalem and a new king to sit on the throne of David that would sit there forever, that will rule righteously, that will rule in such a way that all the other nations would even be coming to him. So I, as sure as Isaiah had properly prophesied what precisely is happening this day, he also prophesied that there was a future. And that's an important piece of the puzzle when it comes to Hezekiah's decision-making because Isaiah has been proven true here. 
And that sheds a very favorable light on the other things that Isaiah has been saying, the things that concern hope and that concern a future. He spoke of this renewed Zion. He spoke of a greater king that would come and rule. And this Hezekiah, he is in that same line, that line of David. He might even think, perhaps I am even that king, that God will make me into something after all. Hezekiah was working with a history behind him. With part of his background was the fact that he was part of this covenant that God had made with his ancestor David, the great king of Israel. And David, this great king, the man after God's own heart, was given a covenant by God that suggested your throne is going to last forever. I'm going to set one of your descendants upon that throne and he will never come down. He will rule forever from that throne in Jerusalem. Now that's part of a greater covenant that God had made with Israel. When you go all the way back to Deuteronomy as they were getting to ready to come into the promised land after God had brought them out of Egypt in such a miraculous way, redeemed them from the bondage of slavery. They were coming out to go into the promised land. He reiterated their covenant he had made at Sinai in the book of Exodus. And this covenant had many conditions in it. And many of those conditions were working against them right now because God had promised them, if you do not obey me in the land, you don't follow my ways. If you act wickedly and do unrighteous things and, and don't do justice for people and you oppress the poor and you don't uh, rightly rule while you're in this land, I will bring enemies against you. I will bring famine against you and, and all these things that God had promised and we can see that very clearly in chapter 36 of Isaiah. A lot of this is working against them right now. That the sins of the past have led to this moment. That the sins of the present were testifying to the justice of God to bring this upon them. But then the covenant also works for them ultimately. Because the covenant included the great grace of God that no matter how bad they were, that even when they earned exile from the land completely, that God would bring them back. That God would continue to work with them and continue to fulfill all his promises. Because their promises, their covenant was part of something greater. And we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when it seems to have begun with the people of Israel. The Lord said to Abram, who later is called Abraham, go from your country, from your kindred, and your father's house to a land that I will show you, the land in which Hezekiah sits and rules. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Well, that could come into play, couldn't it? Weren't they just greatly dishonored by this man? And so he suggests here, these are promises that go further back, simpler and foundational, underlying the covenant that God had made with Israel and even with David. But this last part is so critical. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so there's this great future blessing that carries into it a worldwide importance that we've seen here in the book of Isaiah. And this echoes all the way back to this, that there was a worldwide promise that God was going to straighten things out as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. And he tells to 
the serpent here, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there would be an ultimate victory. And this promise seems to be carried through this covenant with Israel and this covenant with David, right to the point where Hezekiah now stands, that there is a promise of victory in the future that precedes all such conditions upon their living in the land. This is the essential background to understanding this. On the one hand, Hezekiah has his own failures and sins and those of the people of Judah for the preceding decades before his rule even. And the righteous judgment of God is upon them for these sins. And they're now facing and looking out these impossible worldly odds that this great army of Assyria is something that they cannot possibly stand against. The, all their fortified cities have fallen. Their second greatest fortified city, Lachish, has fallen already. And now they come up to Jerusalem and demand a surrender. And all this in the midst of a changing world. Was Hezekiah to cling to the ancient hopes? Because on the other hand are these ancient hopes. A great cloud of witnesses, as the New Testament calls them. Those who have gone before him. Those who have carried the promises of God. Who have acted faithfully to obey God. And yet, and yet here's hope. Not a single one of them was perfect. Think about David. The greatest king, a man after God's own heart, not perfect. Think about the judges that came before the kings, that they had ruled and they had done many wondrous things and God had miraculously delivered the people of Israel before under their rule, and none of them were perfect. And think back even to Moses, who was the, the vehicle of the Lord bringing the people out of Egypt. Moses was not perfect. He lost the, the opportunity to go into the promised land. And you think back even to the forefathers, to Jacob, who was a scoundrel, and even to Abraham, who had his failings of faith. And so on the one hand, you've got all these, these, these failures and, and this great situation that he's in, but on the other hand are all these great promises that were given even to imperfect people like Hezekiah. What will Hezekiah do? And now I want to get some to, to some application here because I want to begin to turn this so that we would understand how, what this might mean to us today. This isn't truly our dilemma because the church today, the people of God, as we continue, as we know that these, these things, that there's a new covenant in Jesus Christ, that the people of God is now the church, a people made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language around the world as the gospel goes out in truth. And it's built upon the, all these same promises. And it's been fulfilled through these same covenants that Hezekiah has. And we today stand upon a mountain of failures, both personal and corporate. There's widespread compromise today in the church. Whole denominations falling away. And as you stand on the, the walls of Jerusalem and survey the, the surrounding countryside and you see the smoke coming up from dozens of villages and, and cities that have been defeated by the enemy, so we too, the faithful of God, stand on the walls, as it were, and look around at the smoldering embers of denominations who have compromised of those who have fallen away, of those who have denied their faith, of a world that is tearing down, as it were, any 
vestige of faith in the Word of God and in Jesus Christ. In many ways, then the Western Church today is like this ancient Jerusalem that is besieged by the enemy on all sides who has taken away our allies, and we are in the midst of a changing world order. And as Hezekiah was pressured, hey, give in, this is the way of things now, it's empires now, this chariots and horses, that's what rules the day. Forget about your old ways and your superstitions. And so too we are told, no, 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 this is a technological age, and we solve problems problems through our craftiness and through science and through the politics of today. Come over to our side. Forget about your superstition, your old ways. Those don't work here. This is a new world. And so we stand in a similar situation, very similar in many ways. And on the other hand, we have this though. We stand on these same promises. And as Hezekiah sees this dilemma between what is right in front of him and what is behind him, so we see what's right in front of us, but we see also what's behind. And we look to the book of Isaiah, and what we see in it is so much of the future, so many things beyond even our day, because he spoke not just of the things happening to Israel in those days, and not just the reestablishment of Israel after the Babylonian exile, He was speaking of a far future time in which the nations would be subjected to God under the rule of Jesus Christ. And we are living in that age as it is occurring today. There is a coming king, and yet he has already come. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, who will reign supremely and indeed is already reigning from above. And he is already conquering the nations with his gospel message. As one by one human beings believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of their sins and are saved, they are brought from death to life. They are moved from the world to the kingdom of God, no longer citizens of a nation on earth, but citizens of heaven now. Over the nations of the earth, as Jesus commanded us to go with all authority in heaven and on earth to make disciples. In other words, we are of a superior authority. There's still this promise of a new and restored Jerusalem in which the Lord will return and reign upon the earth and indeed rule all the nations in peace. And much of this is revealed in the book of Isaiah. And unlike Hezekiah, we stand with more revelation. We stand in our day with a greater understanding and a greater revelation of God because he's made the ultimate revelation in his son. Yeah, he spoke through the prophets and his word can be trusted and his word is perfect and the prophet's words were perfect. And yet he has finally spoken through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he sent to be a substitute for us, to pay the price for our sins. And so we have over Hezekiah a better covenant and better promises fulfilled. And we see now the Lord Jesus Christ making all nations subject to him now, working past our own weaknesses and failures, having forgiven our sins and removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. Now we stand and walk in a new life as those without a past but a future. So the challenge that we have to challenge ourselves with this today is we have to ask a couple questions. How is it that Hezekiah will move forward? What will he do? 
And he has this dilemma of all the struggles that he's facing, all the failures that they've had, all this, God is just in coming to condemn them. And yet, there are these promises going forward. So how should he respond with this news? as his servants come to him with their clothes torn in expression of their great woe, of their great sorrow over what they have heard. They bring this news to Hezekiah. Will he give in? Or will he have faith? And the question that we're going to see in chapter 37 is, can we apply When we watch Hezekiah respond to this, can we respond in like move? And that's a question for us where we are today. How shall we move forward? Whatever your struggle is right now, your struggle of faith I'm talking about, your struggle with life I'm talking about, your struggles as a church and all of us corporately as the church of Jesus Christ today, how shall we move forward? Well, we're going to see next time in chapter 37. And we're going to see that the great promises of God stand up and they stand forward. So tune in next time because this will be powerful. We will see a response from Hezekiah and Isaiah. We will see the Lord respond and work with them and the Lord fulfill his promises and the Lord bring a great relief to his people and that he will continue to move his plan forward as he will continue to move it forward with us. And so before next time, as we continue our study, read ahead and see that you can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can repent of your sins and that you can trust in him because he is the victor. He is the one who a single of his angels could wipe out the entire army of the Assyrians. And he himself rules them all, for he is the Lord of hosts. And he is the Lord of armies. And he is for his people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this day. Lord, we thank you for this word. And I pray, Lord, that those who hear it will be encouraged. That they will be challenged. But they will be encouraged, Lord, to know you and to seek you. Lord, I pray that we will have the faith to put our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that we will trust in him for the daily decisions of how to move forward, that he will help us not to compromise with the ways of the world, not to give in to the voices of the world that call us to compromise, to surrender, to give over to their ways, but Lord, that we will hear the words of your prophet and the words of your son and the encouragement of your spirit to move forward in faith, to hold to, the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to redeem and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so, Lord, I pray that we will move forward in faith. And I pray, Lord, as we study about Hezekiah's move forward, that we will learn many great things. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hate to leave you on a cliffhanger. No, I don't. Perfectly content to leave you on a cliffhanger. I hope you'll join us next time as we take a look at the Lord of hosts.
in chapter 37 will be the Lord of hosts. I encourage you to contact us at whitesrun.org. Learn more about us. You can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And you can find many more in this series called Let Us Reason Together. You can go to sermonaudio.com and you can uh, search all our sermons. You can search them by text, by series, uh, sort them however you want, and you can listen to these uh, all of them stand alone, but yet they all stand together as well. So I hope you'll join us in looking at some more of those things. And uh, may God bless you richly in your studies of the Word of God.